Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Paper Tuesdays with Michael Dwyer and Mark Halpin. Uh, Michael, would you like to introduce our guest for today? Yes, we're Paper Tuesdays. honoured to have a professor in psychiatry at Trinity College in Dublin and a consultant psychiatrist in Tala University Hospital and um, librarian, Dunn librarian of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. It's Professor Brenda Kelly. Professor, a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks a million for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Not at all. Thanks. Thanks for having me. One of the reasons that prompted, sparked my idea of having you on was when you were on Southeast Radio there recently and you were speaking about the book that you wrote back in March, Coping with Coronavirus. You wrote it in 10 days. It runs to, what, 110 pages. But it's it's a simple toolkit to, and you know, coronavirus or no coronavirus, I'd say we could have done with it in just reminding, in, with ourse- reminding ourselves uh, to control the controllables, to remember that small actions help and to think of others and be aware of our emotions. Um, you, I, I was struck by that interview, Professor, because you, you um, were impactful in those few minutes. You wanted to get your message across. Um, is there a reason for that? Is it like, you know, you try to cut, uh, cut through the gar- jargon and just, you know, say there are simple things that one could be doing to improve one's mental health in these times? Yeah, I mean, there are simple things that we do to manage our mental health during regular times. And When the COVID-19 pandemic started, a lot of people lost sight of things they normally did. And it was as if the situation was entirely new, which it was in some ways, but in other ways, the coping mechanisms we can use are very, very similar. So when all of this started at the opening months of 2020, uh, it seemed to me useful to have a reminder of, um, you know, what we can do, how we can use our coping mechanisms, maybe the way we think about things, the way we behave, to try and try and deal with the new and unusual situation, which has now gone on a lot longer than anyone might have expected, I think it's fair to say. Um, so that's why um, I wrote the short book, Coping with Coronavirus. It's an ebook initially. Um, actually, we wanted to make it free uh, but then um, it turns out that we couldn't for some reason. Uh, so it costs about a euro to download it from Merion Press or Amazon or uh, loads of places and proceeds, although there mightn't be any proceeds much if it's only a euro. But anyway, proceeds will go to the Irish Red Cross uh, because it's an effort to you know, use some of the techniques that we already have for managing anxiety and worry and um, getting the best we can out of them in this highly unusual situation. One of the things you say is about finding one's flow and becoming absorbed in a task. And then you, you noted even the, how knitting can offer that relief, that respite. Um, what, what do you, for, as a psychiatrist, what, what is it about the flow state that you think is uh, conducive for positive mental health? Well, I mean, in a lot of um, sort of psychological traditions and religious traditions, uh, people lose themselves in something. Sometimes it's in prayer. Um, say in Roman Catholic tradition, you have some you know, prayers, say like the rosary, for example, which is a very repetitive prayer. You say the same words again and again, and there's a real rhythm and people lose themselves in it. In Buddhist tradition, you have mindfulness and meditation where people... Uh, let go of their surroundings and simply focus on the moment. Um, In uh, certain uh, Islamic traditions, you have the Sufi tradition where people dance and twirl and lose themselves in that way, lose the cognitive awareness. Um, So these are all good ways of 
disconnecting for a little while from surrounding reality and uh, disconnecting from the news about COVID, disconnecting about the pandemic and the endless talk about it, and, and spending time in a nourished, detached uh, state of mind. Now, a lot of people don't like talk about mindfulness and meditation or even yoga or stuff like this. They think it's all kind of new agey, uh, but people have other ways of achieving this. A lot of people uh, doing sport, people going for a run or having a swim, they forget about everything else, they only feel the movement of their feet as they run or the movement of their body in the water. Um, and then for other people, it can be different. As I say, knitting is something that is peculiarly absorbing. People uh, get totally caught up in it. Uh, they forget their troubles, their worries, COVID, the pandemic and all of this. And they, um, they just have that period of time detached. Um, for other people, it can be something like gardening or doing jigsaws. So basically what I recommend is people prioritize getting into that state of absorption, that state of flow where an hour could go past, maybe two hours, and you'd barely notice the passage of time. And that is very, very mentally healthy, particularly now when we're deluged with negative information about the pandemic. And, and say, as a psychiatrist, like you're looking there at the physiological response so in that maybe if, if it's a run, it's that the person is only focusing on their legs moving or whatever, as you mentioned there, but also in the fact that there's an extended pause of meditation. What, what is it that, what is the science or evidence behind that, um, th that meditation as a room for extended pause? Because even you mentioned previously in, uh, in other interviews about how a, a simple pause can really be powerful in stopping someone's negative actions towards themselves. Yes, I mean, the, the cognitive studies, the, if you like, the neuropsychology studies are very clear that we get into negative uh, spirals, negative thought patterns. And um, they've studied the best ways to interrupt negative thought sequences. And one way is to try to have positive thoughts, but that can be incredibly difficult if you're in the middle of negative thoughts. So uh, the uh, studies suggest the best way to interrupt a negative thought cycle is not by focusing on your thinking even more, but by actually doing something, uh, you know, a behavior, standing up, going out the door, walking. I mean, um, we all know that physical sensations can, can trump everything. So uh, to take one example, if you're uh, outside and you're thinking about something and you're caught up in something and it suddenly starts to rain heavily, suddenly that's, that's what matters. That's where your thoughts are. There's this interruption. And so when we have a negative thought spiral, the research is very clear. The best thing, the quickest thing we can do is to behave our way out of it rather than think our way out of it and that and that really really works and it helps you get some perspective on things in terms of the brain itself um, it's a little difficult to know what th this kind of uh, time or absorption um, activity does there have been numerous imaging studies of um, meditation and there's no doubt that practicing meditation or mindfulness or yoga changes brain structure and function and it would be astonishing if it didn't we all know that physical exercise changes our body's structure and function people build muscle and they gain abilities and, and their joints strengthen and their bones strengthen so it's the exact same with our brains when we practice things like um, meditation or yoga or periods of absorption 
uh, our brains benefit and would become more resilient and stronger. Of course, you have first-hand experience. You sat for a year, as the book said, and um, you, you gave 15 minutes of medica- meditation each day. How did you, um, would you recommend it, having done it? Do you still do it? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do recommend it. I still do it. Um, oh. And this is The Doctor Who Sat for a Year, which was a book about trying to meditate uh, for 15 minutes a day, 10 or 15 minutes a day for a year because I'd been reading for years about the value of meditation and how important it is. But I mean, the simple fact was, I mean, I'm, I have a family, I have a job, I have a mortgage. I was never going to walk away, you know, go up a mountain or into a mud hut and uh, meditate uh, continually for uh, a year. Like I just, mm-hmm. I just wasn't, and it's not practical for most people. So the question was, what about a more sustainable commitment um, 10 or 15 minutes a day and is it is it possible to do it in a fairly normal, busy, modern life? And if so, does it help? I think the effort involved in doing it, carving out even that little space every day, is a key part of the benefit. Um, but also the the meditation itself, the the sitting for ten or fifteen minutes, you know, having a pause, letting things settle a little bit, trying to detach for that period of time, failing to detach for that period of time, <laughs> trying again to detach for that period of time. And that's the training. That's the skill you're trying to build. So if you're not failing, then you're not trying properly. Um, And it does help. There's no doubt about it that you become that little bit calmer, that little bit less impulsive, um, you know, and less prone to sudden anger uh, was a big one. So, for example, I might be in the traffic in the car and someone pulls out in front of me in a thoughtless or a dangerous fashion. So rather than being rather than having this surge of, of anger, uh, one is a little more, um, a little calmer, a little more proportionate and able to say, well, look, maybe that person's really late getting home or had problems or had a bad day and they shouldn't have done what they did. But, you know, um, and of course, once you think like that, the moment has passed and you have resisted the, uh, the urge to anger. So uh, it certainly helps with that. And of course, having a meditation practice or an awareness prior to the pandemic is very helpful when something like this kicks in. It's not entirely new. You have some skills already developed. Sorry, Brennan, do you mind just talking us through your own specific practice of meditation? Because there are various forms of it. So what exactly do you use? Do you count the number of breaths, the length of each breath, or are you just simply noticing when you think and trying to bring your thought back to the? So, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of different ways of ways of doing this. Um, and uh, you know the, the purpose, the, kind of the two purposes of it are to uh, just focus literally on the present moment, not the future, because that will just make you anxious or the past, that will just make you depressed. So you just need to focus on the moment. And the second thing you're doing is trying to discipline your thoughts a little bit to stop them ambling about the place and jumping around. So all the specific techniques that you mentioned, like counting breaths, um, are methods of doing that. You're not counting your breaths because it's important how many breaths you take. You're doing that as a way of not thinking about the COVID pandemic, work, uh, family, and all of that. And people focus on the breath, not because it's extra special, just because it's always there. No matter where you are, your breath is with you. You don't need equipment, it's there. And if your breath isn't there, then you've got you know, other problems. So one of the good ways of um, starting to meditate is you just find a a relatively quiet place. You don't obsess about finding a totally silent place. That will never happen. You don't obsess about avoiding other people possibly coming in. 
that will never happen. People are always coming in everywhere. Just do your best to find a relatively settled place. And then I sit down and um, it's, it's good to sit in a kind of a grounded way and um, just on a chair, it's perfect. Uh, two feet on the ground, hands on your lap or on the arms of the chair. That's fine. You don't need to be sitting cross-legged in some intensely painful position because that just won't work. Um, so you just sit in a kind of solid, steady, grounded way. And then you try to focus your thoughts on something really simple. So counting 10 breaths is a pretty good way to do it. And if you breathe normally, um, it'll take you a little while to count 10 breaths. And inevitably, before you get to 10, your thoughts will have wandered off. Uh, thinking about, um, you know, all kinds of things like sensible things, kind of sensible things, and then completely daft random things in your head. And this is good. The key moment in meditation is when you realize that your failure to focus on your breath or your failure to keep your thoughts in order, your failure is good. This means that you're testing your uh, sort of your limit of concentration. You, you, this is the work of meditation. And if, 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 you, if your thoughts don't wander off, then you're not doing it right. So your thoughts wander off and then you say, okie doke, there we go again. And you just uh, try to resume uh, your focus on your breath. Ideally, you count 10 breaths on the in-breath and then um, 10 out-breaths and then count to 10 on the turning of breaths. But look, that's totally academic. Your thoughts will have wandered off ages before you even get to the first number 10. And um, you just got to bring them back and start and try again. That's very useful. Other people do different things. Like some people just sit. Uh, they just sit there and try and let thoughts settle and disappear or watch thoughts drift out of their minds. And they don't do any counting. They don't uh, look at something in particular. They just try and have a clear mind. And that's very difficult because we, we, we live very um, hyper-cognitive lives. We're, we're constantly thinking about stuff. We've constant information available. It's very difficult for us in our current cultural setting to suddenly have a clear mind. So a lot of people work better with something fairly simple like counting breaths. Um, other meditations focus on um, things like developing compassion or trying to feel compassion for yourself and for others and for the world. These are, this is difficult if you don't have the, um, if you're not accustomed or haven't built up the skill of trying to focus your thoughts on a single thing for a period of time. And the breath is as good as anything. The main thing is though, not to get disheartened when your thoughts keep jumping around the place and yabbering and jabbering and yelping. Um, in Buddhism, they describe the human mind like a bunch of monkeys in a tree, all jumping and talking at the same time and going all over the place with no apparent pattern. And we just need to try and quieten that by 10%, by 20%, 30%. And that's huge progress. Um, so med meditation helps with that for sure. You regularly meditate, Mark. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried a few different breathing practices. So I ask, like, I've tried the Wim Hof. I'm sure you've heard of that. And mm -hmm. that's, I find that really interesting because I don't know if you've tried it yourself. It's basically just breathing really fast and getting yourself in sort of like a panic state and holding your breath and bringing it completely back to baseline. And some weird stuff happens with your head and your body. And it's very interesting. But I don't know, is that sort of the same principle i think that's sort of the help autoimmune is issues and things like that oh, it is and but what you describe is is so interesting the fact that 
we can induce these strange mental states in our heads, these strange states of mind, simply by changing our breathing pattern, you know, so quickly. I mean, there are people out there taking all kinds of substances and drugs and, and stuff like that to try and get different states of mind. But with a bit of control, we can sort of generate these very peculiar states of mind. And the methods you describe, um, uh, many people find them very, very useful and very, very helpful. Um, I tend to have a much more, uh, how, how can I say this, uh, steady or a much more accessible, uh, stripped back approach mm. to this. You do find people who pick up all these different meditation techniques and keep trying one and then another and then another as if they're searching for something, whereas what they're doing really is avoiding sitting and meditating. And, you know, our brains come up with amazing ways uh, to, to fill what should be really a space, the space of meditation. So you have people who lurch from one kind of meditation class to another meditation class and then to a retreat and then back to the first meditation class. And what they're doing is they're filling the space with ideas and thoughts, the exact thing they should be moving from. And, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, The Doctor Who Sat for a Year with a, a diary entry every day about meditating, it did occur to me, and I chat about it in the book, that what I'm doing with these diary entries, they're basically a fancy way of avoiding meditating. You know, our brains come up with ways to things we should do. Like I became interested in, in Buddhism and thought I'd try meditating. And I went off and I did a master's in Buddhist studies. And then it occurred to me afterwards, I had done that to avoid meditating. <laughs> because my, my brain, you know, what I should have been doing is, as they say, I should have been on the mat. I should have been sitting, meditating. Instead, my crazy hypercognitive brain decided to go off and get an academic qualification in this area. <laughs> And it was just an excuse not to meditate as much as I should. So the practice you describe, you know, it has a very, very long tradition. And this kind of control of the breath is a very powerful tool. Um, but I worry when people, uh, you know, try multiple ways of meditating or, you know, download 20 different meditation apps or buy uh, essentially, you know, uh, like an Amazon rainforest worth of uh, mindfulness books, which are piled up by their bedside. Um, these are all ways of avoiding the simple, unvarnished meditation, which is what, what we need to do. Mm, that's powerful and an important message as well. Um, just on this kind of area, like um, you, you deal with people every day who have mental health difficulties, and yet this simple wisdom, you have to come up, with, I imagine, with different ways of offering it to the person and bringing them out of a, a bad place is that is there a dichotomy there in that you know you you have a lot of wisdom but yet it's it's finding the right funnel to get to the person that needs it most yeah it can be very very challenging because um uh, the people who are often most open to this are the people who need it the least mm. or have some familiarity with it um i suppose i'm a psychiatrist so i'm a medical doctor who treats mainly in my case, severe mental illness, things like uh, treatment resistant schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder requiring hospitalization, and an awful lot of people who are in these rather extreme states of distress, they really struggle to, 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 to connect with um, to connect with this kind of thing. And they struggle to realize that 
the extent of their own control. What they're experiencing is, in their views, a, a loss of control. Things feel out of control. So it can be difficult to, to, to get the message that there are certain things we can control and we can do um, to be well. However, there is now very good evidence that, say, an eight-week mindfulness course um, will prevent relapse of severe depression. Often people aren't able to participate in it at the most severe moments, but as they improve, and particularly in the recovery phase, uh, the scientific evidence is now very strong that it is um, as good um, as anything in preventing relapse of severe depression, which is amazing because uh, people who've had a severe episode of depression, maybe involving suicidality or suicidal gestures, will be very, very uh, grateful for uh, something that they can do to, to try and stop getting back into that mental state again. So for you, the personal transformation of those cases that, you know, from eight weeks, they've gone from severe depression to, well, an improved state, regardless, that, seeing that is powerful enough to say, no, look, whatever about the hard cases, it's worth it because, you know, you will see a general improvement eventually with patients and with, uh, as you say, positive regard uh, yeah. for the person. Yeah, absolutely. You do. You, you, you do. And you see, um, you, you, you need to believe that people can do this, which they can. And, um, you know, we live, you know, we live in an era when um, non-medication solutions um, are uh, favoured, certainly in the public discourse. Um, they're favoured, which is really, really interesting because never before have so many people taken so many substances like uh, illegal chemicals and so forth. Um, and people are more than willing to, um, you know, to, to, to smoke, uh, snort and inject anything at all <laughs> that they buy from exceptionally dodgy characters who don't even know what they're selling, um, <laughs> let alone how to take it. And yet when it comes to sort of medicines that have run through clinical trials and uh, regulators, people are very, very hesitant. It is a, there's a very, very strange double standard um, right. at work. Um, but anyway, I guess that's the world we're in. Uh, so people tend to like uh, solutions that do not involve uh, prescribed medications. And for people in that cohort, um, it can be very useful as well because it's a very, you know, meditation and, and mindfulness and related activities are a very acceptable um, option at this particular point in our history. It wasn't always the case, but it is now. Yeah, I know it's probably related to that. Uh, you know, the psycho the john hopkins study have you read that or uh, i'm not totally aware of it though the john uh, just last year the effects of psilocybin mushrooms on depression oh, yeah. long term yeah um, yeah i mean so that's psilocybin is very very interesting and there is a big international study going on into psilocybin there is a research center at tala university hospital where i work and in our department um and my colleagues my colleagues are, are really leading out on that and um it's looking at uh, the use of psilocybin for uh, treat, uh, treatment-resistant depression, so for severe depression. There is uh, some evidence that it's helpful, but there needs to be more systematic evidence as there needs to be for any medication. Psilocybin is being treated the same as any substance that's uh, proposed in medicine for the treatment of anything. So doing properly conducted clinical trials is uh, complex and takes quite a long time. There is evidence that it might well be helpful. Um, but um, possibly not for everybody. But I can honestly say never has a clinical trial generated such interest and clamor from people to participate in this. <laughs> it's the, the amount of communications coming in is extraordinary. Um, but there are quite rigorous criteria. 
uh, for, for participation in it to make sure it's as scientifically reliable as possible. It does hold out hope. So do other things like uh, ketamine might hold out hope and um, uh, you, you know, there are trials and um, that is used a little bit now as well in, in a sort of a controlled way. These things aren't dramatic, uh, but, but they do appear to help. And may, psilocybin, uh, you know, I'd say there's a more than 50% chance it'll find a place in the treatment of depression over the coming oh, years. Okay. What about uh, diet, Brendan? Do you reckon that could help ease symptoms of depression? You know, the low carb diets or ketogenic diets, people claim to have positive mental health benefits from those as well. Yeah, no, pe pe people do. And it's very hard to distinguish between the benefit that's attributable to the diet itself or the uh, benefit that might be attributable to that moment when the person said, do you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to really kind of get on top of the, you know, the way I'm feeling and I'm going to take steps. And, it, you know, the, the, whether it's attributable to the psychological turning point or the actual mm. content of the diet itself. In terms of studies, um, it's, it's none of those particularly described diets have been tested as rigorously uh, as med medications get tested. Medications get tested because there's, you're, you know, you're not allowed uh, recommend a medication unless there are clinical trials. Right. Uh, you, people go around the place recommending diets left, right, and center <laughs> without yeah. any clinical trials. Uh, and as a result, um, it's very, very hard to say. Maybe one of those diets, in fact, holds the answer. I mean, the best scientific evidence would suggest that a fairly mainstream, fairly balanced diet will deliver everything to you that that diet can deliver rather than some of the more extreme ones which are um you know less likely like we do know certain things are bad like certain diets that for example um bodybuilders go on you, you like you know these people who eat almost exclusively red meat um and as far as i can figure out nothing else or people who eat almost exclusively powder of some sort like these <laughs> things are bad and while they might generate enormous muscles i i don't know about you guys but uh, they, while they might generate enormous muscles that comes at a serious cost in terms of overall health so i mean the best evidence is for a regular balanced diet but i guess it is possible that out there there is a specific diet that helps but there isn't systematic evidence that I, as a psychiatrist, could hand on heart recommend to, to patients. What we do recommend is we actively recommend exercise, 30 minutes, three times a week of vigor, moderately vigorous exercise. We actively recommend uh, improving diet and moving towards a more balanced diet. Um, and we actively recommend an absorption activity as well. Now, these things are immensely powerful if we can do them, as well as sleep. We, we, we're very, very strong on the role of sleep in mood. And uh, they're the four big things that, that we recommend to people. The exercise, the diet, the absorption activity and sleep. Yeah. Mm. You, you mentioned at the start of a fascinating idea on the, you know, that when someone takes, be it the diet itself or be it the person taking ownership and taking responsibility of that aspect of life, is that a personal view or is there clinical studies into um, that aspect of human behavior? Um, it, it's impossible to study. It's impossible to study that. That's a clinical view, if you like, from the years of seeing people. I mean, I've been, let's see, I qualified in medicine in 1996. So that's 25 years now. And watching people um, having this moment, this sort of 
transition moment when for some at some quite unpredictable point they decide it's time to get organized to get going and to to do to do things and it's so hard to know what triggers it it's kind of like a new year's resolution thing but not happening at new year it's um and it, it's very interesting what triggers this in people sometimes it's a comment sometimes it's um something a bit random um, i'm very interested in public and media discussions about mental health and having been in this field, I, I listen out for these and I hear these all the time, okay? So for example, sports stars, uh, GAA stars or, or whoever talking about their experience of depression or anxiety. And I mean, I've heard, I don't know how many of these discussions over the years, they're very, very similar. And they usually end up with the person saying, we need to start a conversation about mental health. So I, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I've heard this conversation started, I don't know, hundreds of times. Um, but then I had a realization that I have heard it hundreds of times. But every time one of these people goes on the radio or speaks about their experience of psychological problems, there are people hearing it for the first time, you know, and, and that is incredibly valuable. And even if to me the message is the same each time I hear it, that people need to speak up, to need to not be ashamed they need to reach out and that we need to start a conversation and um, it might be the hundredth time i've heard it but it's going to be the first time a lot of people have heard it so it's really valuable that we that people keep on doing that uh, again yeah. and again and again there are always new ears for these things i can't help but think that you know as you say in those 25 years you've heard that so many times and yet you studied the history of psychiatry with the book that came out in 2016 and i'd say now uh, it's the first time in the history of Irish psychiatry that this, uh, you know, you need to talk. Well, maybe not the first time, being a little bit glib, but I mean, that wasn't always the case, Brendan. Let's be. <laughs> no, 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 it absolutely, no, it absolutely wasn't. I mean, it it it, it has been the case for I, I don't know, 10, ten, maybe twenty years now, fifteen years at least. Uh, but it, it wasn't always the case. So, um, uh, I suppose attitudes have have shifted hugely and attitudes are much better now they're still not perfect by any means and there's you know a constant um changeover there's constant you know younger people becoming aware of things needing the message reiterated to them um particularly because you know younger adults uh, struggle a, a great deal with um you know with their emotions uh time of transition a time of identity formation and you know that's why the um the whole uh, restrictions, um, uh, you know, they're, they're interesting and necessary and we need to stick with them. But, you know, one of the concerns with them is to do with the development of uh, young people, particularly secondary school students, particularly that age, whose pattern of socialization has been uh, suddenly changed. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the way that um, secondary school children talk to each other about things, the degree to which they open up to each other, will all be different. I mean, things are different in person, always. We would be having, the three of us would be having a very different conversation if we were sitting down together. Mm -hmm. It would be, it probably would be better, as simple as that. It certainly would be different. Um, and um, I wonder if discussions about these things uh, are being hampered a little bit by the uh, the way we communicate during the restrictions yeah you have any thoughts on that mark or? yeah definitely like and then 
when you look at say children or like a young baby that isn't meeting different adults and interacting with different people and that could sort of do you reckon that could affect their mm. development in some way well there's no doubt it will um and i mean i i know that families and parents are doing their very very best to make up for these these deficits they're trying to make home life more interesting constantly coming up with new ideas for things at home now i'm I think I'm coming at a slightly different perspective than you guys on this because I am a parent uh, at home with kids and I'm guessing you're not. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, um, but th the interesting question for me, Mark, is how do we measure this? How will we know in future years? Because the deficit that you're describing there, uh, just simply being exposed to fewer adults, a less of a range of people, it's very hard to measure the impact of that in future years because so many other variables come in like some people say that when the restrictions are over there will be a bounce back there'll be a period of frenzied social interaction with loads of meeting up and parties a sort of a like the roaring 20s following the flu pandemic and the first world war now we, we never really had a roaring 20s here in ireland there were different things going on but so, so it's going to be really hard to measure the effect that you're talking about in, in research terms, but my personal view is it undoubtedly affects a person's social development if they're exposed to a, a narrower, a smaller range of people. And it's particularly true at the secondary school age where you're supposed to be meeting, you know, different people. Yeah, or starting college, like God mm. loved the, the portrait under the underleaving cert last year and they got no Debs or Gradmas, no first week of college, no moving away from home, yeah. all these sort of... Rites of passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, the, the, these, are, these are incredibly important and um, they've been missed and maybe people will make up for them, kind of, at a later stage and that, but there's just no doubt that we are all mourning the loss of certain things. I mean, mm. some families are mourning the loss of family members who died. Most people are mourning the loss of a lot of freedom, but there are some losses we can't recoup, like those experiences you describe, a baby's first year of life, mm. when they see, I don't know, maybe a half dozen adults, whereas in fact, they should have, should have seen hundreds. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and these insights, are obviously within academia, come from scholarship, and you have been prolific in churning out articles, journal articles, chapters, anything that you can find a niche, you go for it. Like even in terms of what you've three masters and three PhDs, uh, like what, how do you develop such a personal discipline in uh, being an academic? It could have been very easy for someone like you to just take a backseat, take the, you know, do your teaching work, do your medical work and not continue that academic work. I know you could have, you definitely couldn't have been you definitely could have chosen to take a lighter route, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've done a, a large number of university degrees, as you say, and several, a number of PhDs. But it's, personally, it's just the way I am. It's just what I like to do. And uh, it's not like there is specific merit or enormous effort involved. It's just simply how I am. It's just the way I was shaped for some reason. So... While you might enjoy, I don't know, on a Saturday afternoon, you might sit down and watch a rugby match, right? Might require no effort from you, completely pleasurable activity. Um, I would just as I would be far happier sitting at the computer, uh, tapping away on, on an article or a paper or a thesis or something. That's, it's just what I would do. And it would require 
just you know it, it's not a hardship it requires effort i suppose but it's it's just what i like and left to my own devices that's what i do the same way that someone else might sit down and watch the watch the tv um or use Twitter. There are some things that have completely passed me by, like uh, social media. I, I, I honestly haven't a clue, really. I've never used such things. Um, I tried hard to watch box sets on the television. I put in a lot of hard work there. <laughs> just couldn't, just didn't happen for me. I remember watching something called The Wire, several episodes of it, just <laughs> did nothing. I couldn't get it. I tried. I really worked. In the end, I just decided, look, just relax, go up and do, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Fair play. But like um, that source of fun, like do you get fun from, or well, films, you're interested in films. Yeah. I do. And that's, but that's a kind of absorption too. When I, when I go to the cinema, when I could go to the cinema, like I'd go every week, twice a week, I'd see three movies in a day. Um, but that's complete absorption for me. As soon as I sit down there in the cinema, I am gone. I am in there in the film. Just that kind of total immersion just clicks for me. It doesn't for everyone else. I understand that. But for me, it does. So when there's sadness in the film, I'm down in the dumps. When everything is starting to work out again, I'm rising up with the wave. And when it's a triumph, I'm just, I'm right there completely. So, and I break with reality. I could go into the cinema and see three movies in the day and still want more. And I think it's really, it's really good to have something like that that you can do now. The cinema has been taken from me, unfortunately, but I will be the first back in there when they open up. Fair play. Yeah, brilliant. It's a great, great to hear you describe um, in such colourful language a film, you know, because uh, it, it brings to life what the, the peaks and troughs of, of uh, what a, a movie is trying to portray to the viewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm there. I, it's not portraying it to me. I, I'm, I'm in it. Ah, right. Part of it. I'm right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have a book coming out. I think it's this week. You have another book coming out, The Algorithm in Primary Care. Is that right? Or? Oh yeah, that yeah. Well, that's a book about uh, the treatment of uh, uh, mental illness uh, by GPs. We know yeah. that. I, as in, I wouldn't be reading it, but I find that fascinating. That because GPs are the coalface of mental health, so I'm just interested mm. in like, is that is that a regular thing for an algorithm to uh, to mm. be produced for GPs? And... No, I mean, GPs. Um, yeah, you know, most mental health problems th- that we have, our first step is to talk to someone, to our friend, to our family or whatever. And the second step then, if that's not enough, uh, it's to the GP. So 90% of psychological problems and mental health problems, if they are treated at all, are treated by GPs. So the book is about the pathways in treating step-by-step uh, step in managing particularly common problems that present to GPs. These are things like depression, anxiety, alcohol problems, and, uh, and and things like that. So the book is coming out uh, this week, I think, and it's step by step guides to try and help GPs and also to look at the thresholds. When when does a GP decide that you know this is too much? We're going to send this person to a to a psychiatrist or to a mental health team. And those thresholds are. Uh, really important. But you are absolutely correct that GPs manage most mental health problems in Ireland. And I have to say that very clearly and pay tribute to the work of the GPs because I am married to a GP. So just to be clear, in case this is watched by by my wife, GPs (laughs) are central. Yeah. Um, I have a question about grief and sort of GPs and antidepressants. So if someone goes to, um, someone say, 
my wife dies tomorrow, I'm not married, and uh, I go to a GP telling her that I feel depressed, and I'm, I will have the symptoms of someone who is depressed. Am I going to be prescribed an antidepressant and not feel the emotions intended for grief? Or am I going to be talked through a grief process? Do you know what I mean? To actually go in and yeah. work through it myself? Well, look, ideally, you're not prescribed an antidepressant. And you've picked a really good example with grief because there are various classification systems in, 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 in psychiatry and mental health um, to try and put some kind of shape on the discipline, you know, say depression. When is a person sad? When are they depressed? How does, what decides that? Is it length of time? Is it severity? Is it other stuff? Um, so there are classification systems that try to put a bit of shape on this. It, they're never perfect because everyone's different. But for grief, they, they used to define cutoff points. They used to say that if you, someone dies and you're grieving and you're quite disabled by your grief, um, that that's okay up until, say, three months, or some people say six months, but after that, it qualifies as depression. Now, when I put it to you like that, it clearly is absurd, because, you know, if one's uh, partner dies, a very close person you've been with for years and years, there will be extreme sadness initially, and it's possibly right and correct that there would be a little bit of sadness, maybe forever, you know, that because people leave such impressions on us that when they die, they don't fully go from us. A really good example is we often, well, from time to time, see people, let's say a couple who've been married for decades. And let's say um, it's a husband and wife, say, and the husband dies. The wife might report seeing and hearing the husband, the way that she saw him and heard him, I don't, you know, tens of thousands of times sitting by the fire or washing up. It might be just a few minutes. Um, and it's really an echo of what she experienced tens of thousands of times. And sometimes people come to us distressed by this. And certainly our view is, don't worry about it in the slightest. It, you know, it's not a hallucination as such. It's not an illness. It's just your brain and your mind's way of gradually letting go of this person. You cannot be expected to let go in a finger snap. Um, and so we say to people, don't worry about it if you see the deceased person or you hear the deceased person the way you heard them hundreds and thousands of times in your life. That's fine. You're just letting go gradually and talk back to the person, you know, fire ahead. Don't feel bad about it in the slightest, because sadly, this too will fade as, 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 you, as you let go over the years. And they will be sad when that re-experiencing fades. So I guess it varies a little bit, I suppose, from GP to GP, but we're not very good in this country at tolerating this extreme kind of grief and recognizing that it is correct and respectful to the deceased person that we would be sad, that we would find life difficult without them, that the period of adjustment would be very difficult at first, and maybe the period of adjustment to their loss goes on forever. Maybe there is no end. And we need to accept that as well. There has been a tendency to medicalize grief, um, which is unhealthy. It, it's just not good. And I, I can understand it. I've met people who are so locked in grief, they've tried to kill themselves. And you sometimes think when things get to that stage, is there maybe an argument to be made for treating it as depression? And maybe there is at that level of severity, but that threshold, we need to keep it quite high. 
We need to normalize grief, including extreme grief and re-experiencing and recognize that letting go is something that takes ages and ages and can for some people and quite rightly really take a lifetime. The question is, is the person distressed? How disabled are they? How capable are they of integrating this into their life? Can they, you know, live with what is a very, very slow process and reflecting on it. Certainly I try and teach people that the slower you are letting go, you know, it's, it's almost a tribute to the relationship that was rather than something negative. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I'm touched by something you said, you know, a lot of what you said there is about recognition of the individual. And I, I suppose a lot of your work is trying to decipher because every human being is so different and trying to say, you know, to, to see, to see where they're coming from and, and their perspective is, is that like, is that involved? In yeah. That also? yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And this is something that comes up again and again in psychiatry and in all mental health care, which is, um, you know, we have these classification systems, like there are, I don't know, I think it's seven or eight official symptoms of depression, right? And if you have X number of them, I don't even know the number, for X number of months, I don't even know that number either, then you have depression. And, you know, this, this is a very helpful list to have, very helpful guideline, um, but it does need to be applied to the individual, to the person and where they're coming from and how they think. So, what we tend to do is we give this person this list and say, look, here are the official symptoms of depression. You'll go down through them. Do they make sense to you? Do you have this one? Do you not have this one? And the person will inevitably say, oh, I have this and this, but I don't have this, but I have this additional thing that's not on your list. And it's a really good way of talking things through once we apply it, as you say, to each individual person where they're coming from. And we can skip the labeling stage altogether. The do you have depression or do you not stage and move on to what can be helpful for the symptoms you described. And for some people, you know, the psychological therapies like cognitive therapy, behavior therapy are good for everybody. Things like their lifestyle and their diet and giving them that little bit of power back again is important. And then for some people, some of the medications are helpful too, depending on the particular combination of symptoms and their general outlook about such matters. Um, but the, the, the important thing is to take the knowledge, the genuine knowledge there is about common clusters of symptoms and the genuine knowledge there is about treatments and medications but applying it the step of applying it to the person is the step where we tend to fall down the most i find and um respecting where they come from and the limits of what we know which is really quite limited mark do you have other questions i have one sort of broader question brendan and i know that you probably can't give a definitive answer to this but um in terms of like the archaic revival and we talked about this last week about like the world people wanting to go back to like the natural way of doing things and we want to we're sick of like uh, well social media exact stuff like that making us sick but do you reckon that is looking at history with rose tinted glasses like i definitely don't think people were happier during the industrial revolution or even like the agricultural revolution but like do you think that eventually society will go back to the way we were as hunter gatherers or are we going completely the opposite way are we going to like are we going to lean into technology and superhumanism or are we going to try and go back to monkeys out on the fields <laughs> i don't know the answer to that question yeah I didn't <laughs> we, do, 
we do look at history with these incredibly rose-tinted spectacles. Like, you know, even in the Industrial Revolution, lifespan was incredibly short. The histories we read were written by the rich and by the victors, mainly written by educated white men like myself. Um, and there are vast underclasses that weren't, uh, don't even feature. Um, infant mortality was incredibly high. Uh, people rarely lived past the age of 50. Most died before 40. Whereas now we're living into our 70s and 80s. Now you can argue some of that is a sort of medical prolongation of life, but it's actually really good. People are living longer. We're healthier than ever before, um, amazingly, despite there being too many of us on the planet and even despite the uh, pandemic. Um, so the benefits are huge and people are being lifted out of poverty every year, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, there is a real issue though about uh, the cost of this in terms of the planet. Um, and our willful blindness to, to it. And, and I suppose if we were very serious, um, if we could think collectively, which all the evidence is that we can't, but if we could think collectively as a species, we would be spending 90% of our time figuring out how to cope with climate change and the changing planetary conditions we have caused. We would be spending 9% of our time worried about the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else could fit into 1%. That's if we were allocating our time and energy correctly in proportion to the threats that they face to human well-being and human existence. We appear to be collectively utterly incapable of organizing ourselves and our priorities in order to do that. But uh, I do, I do you think there is a lot of rose-tinted talk about the past? Um, people overlooking the deaths, the low life expectancy, the illness, the suffering that was involved. We take so much of our wellness for granted. Maybe this is something of a wake-up call. COVID-19 is, for those of us in rich Western countries, maybe the first time that nature has really brought us to our knees. We're not a people familiar with floods, volcanoes, tsunamis, drought, famine, infectious diseases, and there are huge parts of the world where these things are regular occurrences. Will this very unusual bringing to our knees of the West, rich Western countries change anything? You know, because you're young and full of hope, I'm going to go with yes, it will change things. As I'm old and cynical, I, I'm not even going to finish what my old and cynical hat is telling me about this. It's really important you guys are full of hope. Well, thanks. Well, on paper, too, that was a brilliant uh um, response and on um, paper Tuesdays we have this we actually do have a regular experience of flash flood Brendan so I'll, I'll share this one with you this is our regular contributor James Flood sorry I, I do need to provide some context to this uh, this is coming from the fact that Republican congressmen were scared to vote to impeach Trump for their sake oh, sorry I think he actually had two floods one second there we'll go back to the first one. oh lads it's it's just been a Another week of it, really, hasn't it? Um, I'm really sick of it. Just like, you can't have an opinion anymore. You can't, you can't have discourse with anyone. If you put an opinion out there, now you're, you're doing it at fear of, of being labeled wrong and a man bastard and all these kind of things and, and shamed and ganged up on online. And it's like, it's not on what happened to going and and just having a debate and, and talking things out, like, where's it gone? 
what happened to it? It's the art of debate is gone. Nobody can give facts to back up an answer. It's just, oh, you're wrong. Fuck you. You're evil. You're this. You're that. You're left. You're right. You're. It's, it's just wrong. Bring back debate and argument and discourse and, and everything like that. Like, the, do it out in the open without fear of being bullied and harassed and, and shamed online for having an opinion. Like, it's just. You know, it's, it's it's like that old saying, like every, everyone has an opinion and uh, everyone has an arsehole, but some stink and some don't, like. Wow, eloquent as always. Um, yeah, he was speaking about the, the um, Trump, uh, the Republicans not voting to impeach Trump for fear of their lives. Um, yeah, social media, you've said before that we shouldn't pour scorn on it, Brendan. Um, do you still say that or do you think, uh, or what do you think? No, I, I don't think we should pour scorn on it. I think there's a lot of good that happens on social media. I think it, gives, it does give a new way for people to connect with each other. It helps. It can help very marginalised people. For example, um, I know certain groups of people with disabilities have been able to connect up with each other in ways that would not have been possible or would have taken months or years to do. So there are loads of good things that don't get said about social media, but it is a particularly powerful tool. It feeds into our human tendency to compare ourselves with other people. It allows us to make even crazier comparisons than we usually make. So, you know, I can implicitly look at myself and then go onto social media and look at, God, you know, I actually don't know a good comparator. Um, uh, uh, I don't know. The Kardashians, right? Comparing myself <laughs> to Kim Kardashian, all right? I, you know, I'm 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 just not going to come out good. You know, I'm a bald and middle-aged man in Ireland, um, and uh, you know, she has a t t team of uh, people to curate her online presence and stylists, and I don't know what else she might image consultants. Uh, and yet, I am implicitly making such a comparison when I arrive home from work, bedraggled, wet, tired, and totally disheartened, and I look at social media, and there's this glowing creature. My life seems, it seems less. So social media taps into that human tendency to compare ourselves to other people, which is part of being human, but it allows us to do it quicker and more, um, which, is, which is negative. Um, again, it's a, it's a matter of mental discipline, mental habit, learning how to limit these things. But social contacts are pernicious. We will do almost anything um, for, for some kind of social communication. Um, so I think we do need to look at how we use social media, if at all. I suppose I'm in the lucky position that a couple of times I looked at Twitter or things like that, it, it just did nothing for me at all. Um, so I The algorithm weren't by. able to trap you and get you to Capitol Hill and take the lecture <laughs> with the lads. No, no, they just no. didn't get the I, 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 I wasn't anywhere near Capitol Hill on the day of question. <laughs> 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 Any other closing thoughts, Mark? Uh, no, I, I think I've sort of got everything I wanted. I have one last question. It, it, please, God, when we overcome the pandemic, what do you think we could do to encourage positive mental health? You've spoken before about in Europe, we have the highest, one of the highest uh, suicide rates of young, young men and, and women. Um, we don't, well, I don't know. Do you know if, if those figures are now changed? Because I suppose that would have been a year or two when those studies were completed. Yeah, I mean, looking at suicide statistics is very interesting because people do tend to pick out um, 
you know, very negative statistics. And even one suicide is, is one too many. We, you know, we, we just can't have it. And each one is individual and different. And talking about statistics in relation to suicide can almost feel wrong. It's like it's taking away from the individual tragedy of each case. But the fact is, globally, suicide and the rate of suicide has fallen by a third over the past uh, two decades. And in Ireland, too, the rate of suicide is falling each year. The, the fall in suicide globally is very, very interesting. It's, it's when you take all the countries in the world into account, there's a decline of about a third uh, in the three decades leading up to 2017, 2018. And all countries, you know, most countries follow this trend, but there is one big outlier, which is the United States, where as suicide fell by a third in the rest of the world, in the US it went up by 30%. So, and, and the US is included in the global figures. So if you like the yeah. fall in the rest of the world is even bigger than the third I've said, because that includes the 30% yeah. the, the increase in the US. Now the US doesn't really change global statistics hugely. It has about 4% of the world's population, despite dominating the airwaves 95% uh, of the time. Um, but, but the US is going utterly counter to the global downward trend. Um, and I suppose your question was about after the pandemic, uh, is to realize that, um, you know, there are things we can do, you know, just as the pandemic proves that there can be really negative public health events that upturn our lives, there can also be positive things. So the global fall in suicide by a third over three decades is, it proves, it proves that we can get suicide rates down. It proves we should work harder to get suicide rates down because it is possible to do it, you know? Um, and it's a real source of hope. Now, it's not a source of hope to people bereaved by suicide who might be listening to your podcast. I understand that, trust me, I really do. Nor is it a source of hope to people who are feeling suicidal in the moment. I understand that too. But at global level, it is possible to make positive change that is dramatic. Given that fall in suicide, there are millions of people alive now who would not be alive if the old suicide rate pertained. Um, so I guess just as we're capable of experiencing very negative public health events like the pandemic, it is possible to make really positive changes as well. And that is something we need to take from the pandemic. What a striking closing message. Mm. That, I never would have considered that. Or that is, that's brilliant. Um, Professor, thank you so much, not only for your generosity and your time for your interview, but for your service um, to the medical field and academia. Um, the world needs more Brendan Kellys, I think, um, with the, your sheer discipline and the, the ability to be engrossed in what could be dismissed by others as uh, a um, just annoying footnotes or whatever you know you you find some um some unique pleasure in that and uh, the world will be a better place as a result of it so paper chooses salutes you well th thank you very much and um as regard the world needing more brendan kelly's i will put that to my wife but i will not <laughs> tell you her, her response <laughs> okay well if she, I, i'll quote you as the authority for saying that but i think she might she might want to get in touch yeah thanks so much Brendan. thanks Brendan. and uh, best wishes thanks, to you thanks. and your family take care okay you, you too thanks for having me thanks a million take care